restart. Today's podcast is brought to you by City So Real. In National Geographic's documentary series, Oscar-nominated documentarian Steve James delivers a fascinating and complex portrait of Chicago, the quintessential American city, set against the backdrop of its history-making 2019 mayoral election and the tumultuous 2020 summer of COVID-19 and social upheaval following the death of George Floyd. Hailed by IndieWire as, quote, the most prescient and meaningful docuseries about 2020 America, and Rolling Stone as, quote, an insightful, exhilarating, and absolutely vital portrait of a great American city, City So Real appeared on more than a dozen 2020 best of lists, including President Obama's, and is nominated for a Spirit Award in the category of Best New Non-Scripted or Documentary Series. For more information, visit natgeotv.com FYC. Talk about film with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to a movie reviewing, reappraising, and genre hopping podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name's Chance Solon Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. And we're here to talk about the work of a terrific director. Coming up in early February, the Criterion Collection is going to put out Alan J. Pakula's Parallax View on its uh, DVD and Blu-ray stable. And so we thought this would be a good opportunity to talk about some of the conspiracies slash mystery work of a, a famous but still semi-unheralded Compared to some contemporaries, I would say, director from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Noah, what does Alan J. Pakula mean to you, my friend? What does he mean to me? Um, I think he means Sophie's Choice and All the President's Men, like at the top end. Sure. And then I think uh, he represents a lot of smart political conspiracy fare uh, that was maybe like a lot of B pluses, is what I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we kind of got that B plus when we talked about Pelican Brief. Yes. Yeah, we talked about the Pelican Brief for the Be Real Patreon. Um, and we'll talk about it a little bit again here to rehash. But B plus might be generous for that one. But you liked That's it. That's what I thought. Okay. I liked it. That's fair. That's fair. So today we're going to focus primarily on Clute. Parallax View and Presumed Innocent. Um, and we will make pit stops at All the President's Men, which we talked about in our first ever episode on the Playlist Podcast Network when we talked about William Goldman movies. You can go back and find a longer review of that if you want. We'll, we'll cover his career as, as best we can, but we're going to focus on, the, on the, mysterious, the mysterious three here. Our own paranoia trilogy. We're refashioning Indeed. it. Um, did you see any like hallmarks that you want to talk about off the top? Or do you want me to come in with my theory? What do you think? Well, I do think that what's interesting about Pakula's body of work, at least, is that he, of course, like any auteur director, like has these images that he likes to come back to. In these three movies specifically, like empty chairs are so important whether right. it's the jury box uh and in presumed innocence or like the models getting up 
uh, in Clute. Um, or the board of whomever, the joint chiefs explaining how these events un- un- occurred and then like they disappear. Like those empty seats are, I think, very important to him, which I feel like signals an artfulness that positions him interestingly in a time period where, for me, just sort of going back and thinking about these movies, the ones that I've seen and the ones that I read about a bit. I think he falls somewhere between Kubrick and Sidney Pollack, where you have this paranoia, this thing bubbling under the surface, the firm or eyes wide shut. They all have this interest of, you know, what's underneath these systems and these like pulleys of power, these levers of power. And I think where Kubrick made more art films, Pollock made more commercial fare, you know, adapting best-selling books, uh, whatever sort of commercial cinema he was interested in. That's We'll save that for the Sidney Pollock pod. Sure. But he's, but then that positions Pakula, I think sort of, and maybe awkwardly between the two of them in his both ambition and his, sort of commercial prospects and then the money that these movies made. My big takeaway is that in the movies we watch today, he's tackling fairly conventional and understood genres. I mean, the, the urban noir, the newspaper man, the courtroom drama. Um, but man, Pakula really makes you feel the weight of characters fallibility. Like he loves to warp and complicate a story and, and leave you with doubt. And it's not necessarily like, you know, later with a Fincher or an M. Night Shyamalan or a Nolan, sometimes like the unreliable narrator becomes almost like the movie's meal ticket. Like, ah, the protagonist is the crazy one. But Kula has this very kind of neuron scrambling way of, without making it like a big twist, just letting you know that the people you're watching, however much you want to invest in them, are abstractions. They are fabrications of their jobs and their desires and their skills. And and Bree from Clute and Clute himself and like Mrs. Sabich from um, Presumed Innocent. You can empathize with them, but if you trust in the security and the sanctity of these stories and these people, you do so at your own peril. And that's where the paranoia comes in as an audience, I think. Yeah, it's playing with expectations of like what these characters are capable of, I think is what's pushing the genre forward. You know, if a if a character jokes about like, oh, you better stay alive because you're the only person that knows what I'm doing, like that person's going to end up dead uh, yeah. in a Pakula film. For sure. Do you want to start with Clute in 1971? I would love that. Great. So... I say we start, and then, of course, I want to start a little earlier. So th- I think the only things you need to know about Pakula before Clute are that he started out as a producer and one of the, was one of the producers on To Kill a Mockingbird in the early 60s, which really helped launch his career. And then he made one movie before Clute called The Sterile Cuckoo with Liza Minnelli that I would be interested in watching. Um, not a movie that people discuss a lot, but that was 1969. And then Clute is his, his, second, his second feature. Would you like to synopsize, my friend? A small town detective searching for a missing man has only one lead a connection with a New York prostitute. 
Reed Daniels. One man is missing. Two girls lie dead, and somebody is on the other end of the phone. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Who is it? Lee Daniels. Daniels, girl on the brink. Somewhere among her clientele is a freak who murders call girls. Sit down. And a wholly incredible cop who insists her life is worth saving. So Donald Sutherland plays this detective coming from Pennsylvania whose friend Tom like works at a chemical company and Tom goes missing, and then these le- these lewd letters to Bree, the sex worker in New York, are discovered. And Clute goes to, to find her, to find Tom, who's been missing for, what, like six months when he sets out to find, to New York? Oh, yeah, it's been six months, and the police, like, want to close the case because mm-hmm. there's been no real leads or anything. Um, so, yeah, so then, like, a friend of his and the wife are like, Hey, Donald Sutherland, you're not doing anything. Like, go figure out what happened. Because, uh, well, of course, Nathan George checks his bona fides by, he's like, you ever done a lot of, like, missing person stuff before? It's like, no. You ever uh, been to New York City before? No. Perfect. <laughs> You'll do here's great. Your, here's your bus ticket. <laughs> and then you also have... Uh... Uh, Charles Chioffi, who I know best as the detective in Shaft, who Shaft is constantly thwarting. Yes, but he plays another friend of Tom, who also works at the chemical company. Also works at the chemical company named Peter Cable, and he's also sort of suspiciously in New York at the same time, <laughs> watching over it all. Um, in terms of fiddling with noir conventions in a really inspired way the character of brie who would be uh you know a femme fatale or a damsel in distress a sort of um placid kind of like veronica lake or barbara stanwick character um who's more of a device honestly this movie very quickly just like devotes all of its psychological and emotional attention and his empathy to Brie, which I think is fascinating and raises questions about why this movie is called Clued at all. We'll talk about yes, that. I was thinking that about a half an hour in is like, why is this movie called Clued? He's like barely in it. I don't know if it's like, because even though it's about her, like he is the weird key to her finally feeling comfortable with who she is. But that's strange. Um, I literally other- think of the, it's just because you like can't mount a movie in 1971 on the idea of like the prostitutes, the hero of the movie for, I got to tell you for 10 years of my life, since I heard about this movie, I just assumed that clue was the Jane Fonda character's name. I exactly. Did not, I didn't think that's it was what I had thought title. too, before when I, when I turned it on. So that's odd. Um, and then I guess the point that I maybe like just jumped right over is that like, it's an investigation movie, but pretty quickly 
I'm not that concerned about where Tom is, and it doesn't seem like Tom is around. You know what I mean? Right. It becomes sort of like an Altman movie. It's like the long goodbye or something where, you know, we just start like hanging out with like Roy Scheider, who's like a pimp. Yeah. And he's like maybe trying to like clean up, but maybe he's just like trying to go to clubs and like, you know, take a commission on the sex workers that he manages. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, we don't, there's a good hour in the middle of this movie where we don't talk about Tom at all. (laughs) Right. You know, and then it becomes a romance between uh, Brie Daniels and John Clute, Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Was it difficult to transition back from the Jane Fonda of nine to five who didn't know the difference between S&M and (laughs) M&M's to now having Jane Fonda like the voiceover (laughs) that keeps playing is like – how she's going to take off her sweater and like let loose because that's the only way to live. The best, thing about it. It, the best thing about inhibitions is overcoming them. Indeed. Um, yeah. Um, it was not that difficult. Uh, I mean, great question, but she's pretty iconic for this role and is an icon really associated with, you know, a kind of second wave feminism. So I was, I was, I was prepared to see her this way. And it's, it's really. I think fantastic performance because of what she's doing, but also just the gestures that the movie gives her to work with. I became like sort of obsessed with just the spaces that it finds Brie in. I mean, the first time you see her, she's in this lineup of, of women who are trying to get uh, hired for this like makeup marketing campaign and she's dismissed and that they're, you know they're really kind of treated like cattle, B plus, more or less. What's that? They call her a B plus. Oh, do they? That's <laughs> so the guy evaluates her and then moves on to the next person. Oh God. Um, but then you see her at home, and there it's a dingy apartment. It's messy. It's too small. But you see that she has this cool little like you know perpendicular cigarette holder she's like singing battle hymns to herself she like sets a go to sleep alarm where she like stops reading she's drinking white wine she like has the she's like hanging out with candles by herself and i was just i loved how the movie showed like there's so much more to this person than her surroundings would indicate. And I, I wanted to throw it to you for a second too, because I also feel like that what a it felt to me like a quintessentially sort of like New York portrayal of like young people having to find ways to fashion their humanity in like surroundings that otherwise would minimize and dehumanize them a lot. Yeah, I mean we're mostly just cool people hanging out. Oh waiting for- shit. You know, that, people to come to our door that one was and be like, hey, help me with this investigation. Right. I think the most like – no, I, I understand what you're saying and I appreciate it. I think the most like New York exchange is the early one where Clute knocks on the door. He's like, hey, I'm John Clute. And she's like, who? And she goes, John Clute. It's like, no, I know your name. Like, what are you doing here? And then she opens the door a little bit, satisfies her curiosity, sees that he's not police or FBI or everything, and then just like – shuts the door because she like doesn't have to deal with this person for sure i love the line um 
he's like, Tom, Tom Grunemann, he wrote you some letters. She goes, wow. Like, the, <laughs> you know, she's given these A lot long, of men have written me a lot of letters. Yeah, she's given these long speeches that we see, like, to her, to her therapist, too, about, like, all the different ways that she molds herself and finds control and hates sex work and also, like, really appreciates that, like, sex work is her favorite kind of acting and that's what she wants to do more. And then for this, like boring sideburn set of sideburns to be like a man wrote you a letter <laughs> like you understand how meaningless that is to her exactly and i think that's really interesting to pivot from that moment of like this woman doesn't stand out in the modeling thing which is of course outrageous because it's jane fonda right. but then seeing her in the one-on-one type of performance with the johns that she fields Uh, And then seeing the process for her of like she, you know, she makes the call and then she like dresses up a bit and then she, you know, goes through the space of the city to like get to a hotel or an apartment or whatever. And then, yes, is able to put on a totally different face and something that I mean, this is one of the movie conventions where you see actors acting, acting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the nuance of the performance here is that like when you see her like reading Shakespeare or whatever, she's like good at it, but she's not great at it. What she's great at is these interactions with these men, making them feel the things that they want to feel as she describes later, like go down by pulled by the nose by her down the ways they think they want to go. So maybe that's a good opportunity to kind of open this conversation up a little bit to the to the killer without sort of spoiling or we should probably just talk about the end right if why you want- do you want to talk about the end because i don't know that i understood the entirety of the end so maybe you can explain it to me i could try um if you don't want spoilers for a 50 year old movie clue uh skip ahead five minutes um it becomes pretty quickly apparent that the Charles Chiofi, the Peter Cable, um, who is the missing guy's like associate through all of these, just like incredibly um, striking and harrowing scenes of him, just like in a skyscraper listening to tapes of Brie talk to God. He loves clients. listening to tapes. He does. Um, He's got tapes for days. And it cuts a pretty interesting if maybe a little inscrutable sort of psychological profile of like who is this guy who uh may or may not be spying on brie through the roof of her apartment or may or may not have like killed these other sex work associates that she knew some time ago um he is as fascinated with the control dance she is like he he keeps like listening to a tape of her for like methodological reasons um yeah he's trying to understand the yeah the whatever of this person the pathologies of this person like peter cable seems to be you know eyeing the the beating and death of these sex workers because he he can't stand the idea that they do have some control going on, or he can't stand that he was caught um, right. experiencing some of that control. What do you think? No, I absolutely agree that this guy's like 
some sort of representation of here in the early 70s, the kind of like white knuckle control that some of these corporate people in the American hierarchy like want to feel and where they both let loose and, you know, get their get their jollies is by like literally making someone feel small with violence. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I think we almost see shadings of like early American psycho kind Mm -hmm. of not humor, but like that's the joke. Yeah. I don't know if it's but it's not played for a joke. No, 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 no. But that's like the if we're talking about Pakula's like the expect the other side of the expectation and what he's playing with there. Like you expect it to be like, oh, some like dirty guy who like can't get his life together or whatever. Right. And it turns out to just be the the psycho who has the six figure job. Yeah. Who's obs- as a, who's weirdly as obsessed with process as anyone in any Pakula movie, for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, and, and as explained by, I mean, there's almost like that Mind Hunter intro thing with like him putting the you know the recording right. apparatus together. I, we can't talk about the movies of Alan Pakula without talking about Gordon Willis, the cinematographer. Um, for sure. His most. Pakula was Willis's most frequent collaborator, even though he worked more famously with Coppola and Woody Allen. Um, but the the shadowing in these in all three of these movies is unbelievable. the The alienation and embrace of weird spaces, like it just owes so much to Willis and his ability to this the the long. Fonda Bree's got a couple long walks in this movie oh, yeah. where she comes down the aisle of the garment factory in the in like the blue palette, which is just a little more has like a little more shimmer than the blue on Hal Holbrook and the parking garage and all the president's men. But like yes. Willis always picks a color palette and you just it's really cool that a movie can like show as much grit and realism as this one, but also like embrace fantasy in a moment like that. Like you're seeing the fantasy that she's so good at creating. And then the long walk through the club where she just seems so fucked up and, but you don't know what she's moving toward until the last second. And you realize she's moving back to Roy Scheider. These are amazing sequences. And they're good at like transitioning from moment to moment without having like the obligatory scene, you know, like seeing Jane Fonda like clearly fucked up on whatever, but never really like having that scene where she like heats up the spoon or something. Right. You just know that the intensity of the previous scene and then how sort of harried she looks in this scene, like you get what happened between them, which I think is a really... Like he loves Pakula loves the shot of like like the car like just pulling away enough where you don't have any you know you don't have this ridiculous you know car montage of people going places. It's like mm-hmm. here's just the first motion of it leaving the frame. We don't even see it exit. You know, I think that's really smart. For sure. Why don't we tell people how we rate movies on this here podcast? And then we'll talk about uh where Clute lands for us. On Be Real, we rate movies in two categories, a good or bad for technical quality and a good or bad for watchability. So what are the four possible ratings? I don't care! 
Good, good movies are both well-made and highly entertaining. The Fugitive, Parasite, Rear Window, or The Hunt for Red October. Once more, we play our dangerous game. Good, bad movies are often impressive technically, but also tough sits. Historical melodramas like The Mission, horror movies too scary or gross to rewatch, or self-serious musicals like Yentl. Papa, can you hear me? Conversely, bad good movies are highly flawed but still gratifying. Nonsensical hangouts like Hot Tub Time Machine or ludicrously fun action fare like Twister or Stargate. Give my regards to King Todd, asshole. Bad, bad movies are neither well-made nor entertaining. Examples we've covered, unfortunately, include Garden State, Fifty Shades of Grey, and Attack of the Clones. I'm deeply sorry, Master. Got all that? Time for a rating. I really like this movie. I think it's a good good. Um, I just love how many ideas it has. And I know that's a very generic thing to say, but when I was trying to think about the difference for me between these like 70s movies and say like the Pelican Brief, which we watched the other day, it's not a purely aesthetic thing where I just like Michael Small's score so much, which by the way, I wish I could talk about that for 20 minutes. I love that score. Um, but it's just like these movies are so full of ideas. They're so full of choices. There are 500 choices in this movie about the way that someone should walk across the room or what kind of flowers she should be bringing back home or um, how her favorite John's secretary should make her feel uncomfortable when she wanted help from that guy, but all he leaves is the money. Um, and I feel like in a, in his later movies, like when you just get more involved in like a kind of middle brow Hollywood machine, like the, the essence of choice just disappears. And this movie's just brimming with, it's, it's not avant-garde, but it's just so brimming with creativity and Fonda is amazing. And I think that Donald Sutherland is you know he doesn't jump off the screen but he's not trying to and it's also a lot different than you've seen donald sutherland act in other movies like he really locks it the fuck up in this movie and you know that he could let it loose in other movies um i really liked clue good good yeah it's amazing to me just like how you could kind of make anything uh in the 1970s and make it look like whatever and there's something miraculous about just how gritty the filmmaking is and how like clearly they've just found locations for this and nothing's really built, you know, there's no digital post-production to like, you know, put a fucking spaceship in it somewhere. There's just something so, I don't know, honest about the, just the way the, the film feels watching it. Um, that being said, I do think this movie drags a bit in the middle that hour where we like kind of lose focus on the missing person bit. And I think it maybe spends a little bit too long being about the romance of these two people. Um, and then I guess my final question to you chance before I rate it is what happens? The guy, the guy's probably dead. The guy's definitely dead. Because the his his colleague at the the chemical company set him up, but for what reason? Oh, I think that Peter Cable killed Tom because Tom caught Peter seeing one of the sex workers that 
he also ends up killing. So Tom was going to use this information against Peter. But wasn't Tom sleeping with... Didn't he like hook up with uh, Jane Fonda? Yeah, like two years ago. They don't remember it. He wasn't the important one. It was always Peter. Like these two would take business trips together to New York. Interesting. And they would cheat around and they would sleep around. It's all... I mean, this kind of goes to the conspiracy thing, right? And it's so off screen in this one, which is like, this is all about the... Uh, ascendancy machinations of a chemical company in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I just wanted a little bit more of like the detail, like a little bit more of the meat mm-hmm. of the actual conspiracy. Cause I don't think I really, cause you really only see, and I think it's brilliant. Like the way that you only see Tom like in his element at a dinner party. And then uh, there it is the empty chair right. uh, where he's supposed to go. But I think I wanted maybe a little bit more of him, uh, even if maybe not even flashback or something, you know, the way that presumed innocence kind of put together, but just something to like understand the relationship, like with the wife and with his friend who he's, you know, cavorting at night with in the city when they're away. I mean, you know, Pakula loves a character who's just like working late that night. Wink, wink. I'm actually like just going fucking crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess I would have enjoyed a bit more, and maybe not through a scene, but just something about who this guy is. Right. Yeah, he's used entirely as an absence. So I think in that sense, it's kind of good-bad. You know, I think it's a well-made movie. It's definitely like a product of the early 70s and the sort of reckless abandon uh followed in new york based cinema uh, but yeah i think in terms of the story and that holding up to be a wholly sort of entertaining and satisfying experience it it lacks a bit i think wanting more tom is a weird thing to to put on this movie. i think you trade tom He's for just... a little bit of the romance at the middle because like you're talking about donald sutherland being all buttoned up and then he like he opens up a little bit. But again, even the title character we don't know a ton about. And ultimately, like their romance is not the important takeaway. Is it not? You you walk into a you you've you've walked into a, a house, a beautiful house, a complicated house with all these wings of these different of the relationships of that that have been and will be in Bree's life through her narration to her therapist. And you're like, I want more about that that Tom door frame I walked into. <laughs> I guess that's true, but like that's what's holding the you know, the whole narrative together is that he's there to find someone. And I think for a while the characters forget why he's even in New York, you know, and he like doesn't have any money. So like what is he what is he doing there, Donald Sutherland? What is Clute doing? He's hanging out with Bree. He wants to be with Brie. I know. You love The Hang. But, like, the movie is two hours long. And we don't really get into the real climactic ending here. And, you know, for an hour and a half. It's enough. All right. Good, bad. You said good, good? Of course. It's a really good movie. God, you're so butthurt about that. 
I've been, I have to tell you, I've been a little angry all weekend because I remembered how you said all the president's men is good, bad, which made, <laughs> was irking me all weekend. It's a very, very, very good movie now. Technically. <laughs> all right, let's move on to 1974 and the parallax view. An ambitious reporter gets in way over his head trouble while investigating a senator's assassination, which leads to a vast conspiracy involving a multinational corporation behind every event in the world's headlines. Every event? I don't know that we established every event. Just a couple uh, key ones. God, they just love to like underplay and overplay in the same synopsis, don't they? Oh yeah. This is this synopsis is both too long and too short. Okay, let me ask you a weird question about the parallax view and just yell at us if you actually have this information. Did this movie like come out in nineteen seventy four? Everything I could find said it made like it grossed like two thousand dollars at the box office, and I could not find any record of box office receipts or that like where it landed in Warren Beatty's like whether he was up or down at the time. Did you find anything about this? How this movie? No, was I can't say that I I dug that hard though. Maybe we're not supposed to. Maybe Parallax would like us to. Doesn't want to but you, there's just like receipts. no record of this movie that we bo- we both knew ahead of time w- came out. I don't. Know. I don't think it's that obscure of a movie, is it? All I could find are under box office receipts were that it made like twenty nine hundred dollars, which is nothing. I mean, and it's it's no presumed innocent, but <laughs> so this movie finds Warren Beatty, which we ne- we've never done a Warren Beatty movie before impossible we haven't you want to name some i'll tell you that we haven't done them uh bugsy he screamed at the top of his lungs yeah we've definitely done dick tracy once or twice (laughs) we absolutely have not (laughs) yeah Uh, anyway about red reds red I i think you would remember if we'd done reds um anyway this movie finds warren Beatty between the sort of smash success of Bonnie and Clyde and he done McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And after this, he gets more into production and directing himself with shampoo and heaven can wait and reds. But this is a, he like taken the kind of funny 
it's a good match. It's a good. It's an apt fit. Is he like taken a couple years away from acting because he worked his ass off to try to get George McGovern elected in 1972, and holy shit, did it not work? Um, and then this is kind of his sort of weird hell bent return to stardom. Uh, and what an incredible return it was, at least on the screen. Uh, nobody yeah. saw it, but at least in principle. Sure. Yeah, I think his character in this uh, is just like the kind of thing that movie stars must like dream of. Like, when do I get to play the reckless journalist who may be a little bit too reckless? <laughs> but this is the only movie willing to push back on, you know, the Pelican brief of it all and like maybe give up on the journalist by the end of it. Sure. <laughs> That's the fascinating thing. It's like you're watching this movie and he kind of resembles, like he kind of resembles um, Paul Avery, the Robert Downey Jr. reporter from Zodiac. Like he's about to, like he's an intrepid reporter, but he's also about to drink his way out of the job and we meet him and he's he, Hey, of- he's licked. He's licked drinking as far as anyone can tell. Yeah. Um, he's drinking milk. Sure. Um, but he's also like sort of, he can't help but sort of become the story, right? Like his place is getting raided the first time we meet him and he like sneaks. He's a real ace in the hole. Yeah. Sneaks into the neighbor's apartment. Yes, exactly. Um, and you just keep watching this guy and in one way it's a very classical movie star thing, right? He's just got this long hair and Warren Beatty's got that chin and he's just like, I'm, I'm on the case. I'm doing the job. And I could not help the sensation that this guy, Joe Frady, this Seattle journalist, is so goddamn weird that like something <laughs> something is desperately wrong. And I think that's the takeaway of the movie. That's the like the Pakula doubt. Like there's no Shutter Island ending to this where it's just like he was Jason Bourne. But <laughs> but he but why does this journalist, this sober third-rate journalist why does he have these jason Bourne tendencies you know like why is he so good why is he so easily recruitable by parallax is the interesting character question here right and i think even we've gone too far here because i think this movie has one of the coolest cold opens of a movie ever yeah let's let's just go ever (laughs) yes okay here we go Where the senator is, of course, assassinated on the 4th of July on the top of the Space Needle. Right. And it's funny because watching it, I've watched, I watched it twice. And yeah. watching it the first time, I was just like, they, this is a poorly shot scene. You, like, can't see anyone. And, like, nothing is on, like, the thing it should be on. And the second time I realized that's totally on purpose because you're not supposed to have seen with any clarity what happened. You're only just supposed to know what, what some version of what happens. Right. Uh, and you're supposed to see a couple of faces and then we're moving into the, yeah, the Frady narrative of piecing it together. And, of course, I love the noir, you know, the femme fatale coming in. It's, and it's the reporter who, who, like, was kind of flirting with him and, like, didn't let him come into 
the the space needle with the rest of the reporters who were going to talk to the senator uh and then she's the one who's been broken three years later uh by this occurrence and begs for his help and of course you know she then turns up dead in the following scene in a great a great jump cut mm-hmm. uh where she like just leaves the apartment and the next shot it's her corpse in the in the morgue. Right. Uh and then of course Frady's yeah, he takes up the case and then he's got the you know, the editor who's sitting in that office just like John Lithgow. Yeah. Uh or Ben Bradley and all the presidents. Or Ben Bradley, uh whomever. Yeah, who he's reporting back to on on whatever's happening. And you know, it has all the tropes of the noir thing, but then like I would say halfway through the movie, for no like specific reason, there's a five minute sequence that attempts to like indoctrinate the viewer, I would say, into a certain belief system through images and words like that patriotism is being stolen because of these like girly men and the the hulking masculine men are the one who are going to take it back by sacrificing themselves through fire and blood you know nothing nothing like we're dealing with uh in 2021 or anything but it's like really long and it really sets the tone for like fracturing this film into a like act two which is like a mind fuck. Yeah. Well, here's my, I don't know if it's a hot take, but here's my take though, is that like the video indoctrination, the long like mother country, um, what are the, what are Hitler. the terms? Mother, uh, <laughs> Hitler's not one of the terms. He's father, just one of the country, photos. love, me, home. home. Right. Donuts. And then it's, yeah, it's like Hitler and like a pinup girl and, and MLK and and all this triumphant music is going on the whole time, right? I mean, there's so much I want to say here. Okay, but my big take is that slideshow didn't do shit, man. That slideshow is just a, a representation of what has been mediated to America, the horrors of the '60s and the early '70s. This like string of political violence and conspiracy and authoritarianism, um, and He's not different. Frady is basically behaving in the same either sort of, uh, you know, socially normal, but like otherwise kind of unhinged ways he was before. I mean, he goes to a small town to try to find one of the people who was there at the top of the Space Needle that day and just starts like fighting cops and you know, getting involved in car chases and without breaking a sweat, without breathing heavy. He's just like, oh, I'm fine. I'll just sort of break into houses and run from the cops. And I've got aliases. Get a plane to land because there's a bomb on it. Before this story even starts, Noah, he is trying to kind of Alec Lemus himself with Spy Came In From The Cold by asking his FBI contact to kind of create like a sex offender identity for him that he can fake be caught in later like i think the message here is that like this guy was ready to be parallaxed the entire time but also then there's the question like does parallax have like mind control stuff or are they just like allowing people who have the disposition to go a little bit further in their job than they should can be used in order to stage 
uh, assassinations of prominent people. You don't see who fires the gun at, well, I mean, at either climactic moments. But you no. just assume it's the guy that they're chasing because it's the guy that they're chasing. Right. But the guy whose face you see, who's probably the actual person. Because uh, I think if even if Freddy had ended up on the plane because they were following – because he was following that one guy to the airport, I think they would have been like, oh, the person who put the bomb on the plane was Freddy because he like right. bought a ticket at the last second and – you know, so I think even if he had not been successful, they still would have blamed it on him. But I want to ask you about like the leading uh, sort of following that the most interesting to me shot of the movie, where either they like ran out of money or I just don't. I, maybe I want to talk about it. But so the plane lands, everybody gets off. We see uh, Freddy get into a cab, drive off, and then like the bomb goes off in the plane, but you don't see the plane, the plane, the plane is off screen. It's just like, you know, a fucking shake thing. Yeah. I almost thought in retrospect, because it's never referenced again, that Freddy just like thought it happened, but it didn't actually happen because both he and the plane are off screen. Right. Exactly. He just assumed that that's how it ended. And he saved all these people. But he never thought about, oh, maybe he just like put a suitcase on the plane so I would be on the plane. Right. The movie absolutely does make you feel like you're losing your mind in a pretty compelling way, I think. I mean, the whole final sequence of the, I think it's, is it at the Hammond building in Atlanta? Where is that place that like looks like a modern museum? Yeah, I don't know. I keep getting I keep seeing it referred to in like the IMDb trivia is like the school gymnasium and I'm like this is like a massive conference center this is not like some school gymnasium. Well that's what it, I mean regardless of what it is it's like he enters a building that is part like a monolithic modern art museum part office space and then in the in the middle of all of that it is like a yeah like an NBA arena that's like a rehearsal for this like high school marching band to celebrate this other Senator. Um, But you just feel, I mean, it's, it feels like it's like Charlie Kaufman, but without the showmanship of just like this building is becoming a fifth thing. Like I love that reference. It really is like the Synecdoche, New York, like uh, play within the play thing, except there's like no buildings in it. It's just a big, like empty warehouse space that like almost feels like it's outside. Yeah. You know, I thought it was so interesting when like the cars end up showing up and they like, like don't quite right know. Outside? Yeah. Yeah. They, but they, the cars don't quite know how to behave like indoors. Yeah. They're like going around stuff that they should just like bump into, but they like, it's so funny. It's crazy. And seeing the golf cart, like, not take out the little tables and chairs. Oh, man. That's a baffling, baffling scene. And this is where, I mean, this movie, the opening shot, the first thing you see is a totem pole, and the next thing you see is the Space Needle. And I think there's a very clear message there that we, as, like, humans, have transcended folk art 
to these like mid-century monoliths that this movie uses to such disturbing effect. And the Pakula always loves to use to disturbing effect, whether it be the Library of Congress or these courthouses in Chicago. There's this way in which these like mo- these very tasteful monuments that we build to ourselves also have this like profound emptiness that he likes to make use of and who also likes to make use of them is Gordon Willis. I got to tell you like so he's Willis is famous for like his underexposure, right? Like he would when he would shoot The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2, he would push film stock to its absolute limits of like how little light he could have and still have it be seen. Um but man, he when I think about how these movies kind of define a voice of one of the voices of 70s cinema, there's something about like American life and architecture and Willis's eye mixing where it's just like there just wasn't as much light. Like we just built these buildings where it's just like maybe there's a window, but otherwise enjoy the room, baby, because like there's there's nothing, there's no blue light, there's no technology. Everything's just so so shadowed it's very cool yeah and you can see sort of the visual palette like kind of predicting i mean it almost looks like they're in space at the end yeah you know just how i mean it almost is like uh 2001 a space odyssey or something that scene of and i had more than one time where i was just like how did willis know that that one little light would be all we would need for the actor, where Beatty's running across the crossbar of the right. arena and the rafters, where it's got to be 500-yard crossbars, and it's just, like, white on the floor below and white on the ceiling above and black in the middle, and there's just, like, a, the tiniest light on Beatty, and it's breathtaking. Well, because then you kind of think that, like, is the conspiracy so big as to like the conspiracists set up the political rally in the space specifically for this reason. Like even the, you don't even know if like the space is the enemy. Right. Uh, Cause they're just like hanging out in the security office and nobody cares. Right. So like their control goes very high up. Um, but then like, this is a definitely a post code movie, as they say, where it's not a happy ending. Oh no! No, we, I, can we talk about that? Or? Sure, sure. With yeah, skip ahead another five if you don't want to hear the ending of Parallax View. So he's dead. Yep. Warren Beatty, yep. Frady. Yeah, he like gets Frady, framed Frady. for the. He's like the Lee Harvey Oswald. He gets framed for the killing of the senator and gets shotgunned by his mentor from Parallax. Mm-hmm. You I, you could really feel it coming, though, again, because like, I just love how in these Pakula movies, they're not right, and you know it's not right, and the movie like keeps marching ahead like, I don't know what... Was there a problem here, officer? Like, what do you think is wrong? And then, like, eventually those those doubts will bear really frightening fruit. For sure. And that's what happens in this one. Yeah, I mean, it almost has a horror movie kind of ending to it. Um, yeah. But this is a movie about, like, the psychosis of assassination culture, basically. And what what you tell a country. Like, if you tell 
the the you know the very fascist slow pan into like if you another Willis thing is if you drain the red white and blue out of American iconography and zoom in on the Warren Commission in black and gold it is indistinguishable from Nazi symbolism um, but if you tell a country over and over and over again that these people were psychos who acted alone you're essentially accusing the populace of being fucked by its bad seeds and it's absolutely maddening and this is and it's like whether whether there was a conspiracy or not the desire to look for one comes from a government telling its people that they're crazy sometimes i feel a little crazy sure i think this tv (laughs) too much mother too much cake i mean mother (laughs) um this movie, uh, yeah, mind blowing. I do feel like my my brain was like rearranged by the brainwashing, but like not even though in the way that I was thinking. I was sort of like, "Is that it?" And that was its own mind fuck in and of itself. Um, I would love to watch this movie like five more times and then check myself into an institution. I'm gonna go good, good. Yeah, I'm only two watches away from that. I think, and I think this is also yeah, this is like a classic really good paranoid political thriller with some like the fact that this like the the visual of like the people turning the cards around to go from like lincoln to washington to jefferson to this fucking senator who's like smoking a cigarette while a recording of him is playing yeah like that is so like just damning and like it really sticks with you um i think it's a an unquestionable good good we should probably, I mean, we don't have to go back to it now, but a lot of Manchurian candidate kind of influence on this puppy too. Um, oh, for sure. But just these little flickers, so many subliminal fucking flickers. When they're doing the card flips, they're doing Mount Rushmore in order, left to right, right? Right. And then they show it later, and one of the card flips is Andrew Jackson. And I'm like, am I losing my mind? Andrew Jackson's yes. not on Mount Rushmore. He's just one of the most violent presidents ever. What are we doing here? Absolutely. Yeah, then the movie's fucking with you just the way the Parallax View Corporation is fucking with Mr. Frady. As you were watching this, these, did you have any thoughts about All the President's Men? Did it ever pop into your mind? Because that is his most famous movie. For sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that you can see the things that he was working out or that he saw work in all the president's men and then play with that stuff in kind of like, I think it's interesting that you have parallax view that sort of is the counterbalance to the Woodward and Bernstein who were the journalists that like do pull it off by following the rules. Um, So it's almost like the work has a commentary on itself in real time. Mm Mm-hmm. I was struck by, I remember you talking when we reviewed it in 2018 on the Goldman pod, you were kind of focused. I thought sort of oddly at the time on like, it's actually the opposite of what you said just now. It's like in a way by constantly going off of unnamed sources and this man in the parking garage who Woodward had cultivated before the movie starts they are rewriting the rules of journalism and there is no safety net here. Like if they're wrong, they're wrong. And 
they'll they'll be fucked and there's not a lot of empirical evidence about anything that they're doing um and i think that i that slightly rubbed me the wrong way when you were talking about it in the same way that anyone watching the movie is like i don't want to hear about that get nixon get nixon but I rewatched part of the movie this morning. It's on HBO Max. Pakula spends so much time being like, are you sure, guys? Because if you're wrong, you're fucked. And it's not just cheap stakes drama. It's that, are you going to forge ahead? Because we don't necessarily have the proof of what you're saying. And that's the, that's the really like paranoid part of it, is this easily could have gone another way. So you agree with me now? I do agree with you. It was a good point. Wow. Three years later, put it, put it on the big board. <laughs> yeah. That um, means a lot to me. Sure. I remembered. I remember your points from podcasts from two years ago. Remember any of mine? 2018. That's three years ago. That's three years ago. Jesus. How much can you tell me about Deep Throat? How much do you need to know? You trust him? Yeah. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. And I hate trusting anybody. So post-President's Men, he makes a Western I'm really interested in watching called Comes a Horseman with uh, (laughs) Robards and James Kant. I'm just, that sounds like a movie up. in a movie where it's like, oh yeah, he was uh, he was he directed the thing comes a horseman uh, starring Rick Is Dalton, Eli Cash. Yeah, it was Rick Dalton's <laughs> last movie before he died, based on an Eli Cash short story. Everybody knows that Rick Dalton died during the making of Comes a Horseman, <laughs> but what Comes a Horseman Two presupposes is maybe he didn't. <laughs> And then in 82, he makes, uh, Pakula makes, not Rick Dalton or Eli Cash. In 82, Alan J. Pakula makes Sophie's Choice, which is a very prestigious drama that wins Meryl Streep the Oscar. It's a two and a half hour Holocaust drama that I, I feel like its reputation or the idiom, a Sophie's Choice, precedes the movie at this point. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. And I feel like quintessential good bad yeah so his choice could be one of those ones that we very arrogantly like put in the rating explainer as good bad but neither of us have seen <laughs> no i have, <laughs> have not. you seen it i have okay. not um but apparently her house uh is in my neighborhood sophie's ha- house yeah the house they use for the filming of sophie's choice is in my neighborhood wow then he in the 80s he makes Movies like Dream Lover, Orphan, See You in the Morning, which I've never, I don't know anything about. But in 1990, he... You haven't heard of the Albert Finney, Matthew Modine vehicle, (laughs) Orphans? No. I bet most of these movies are probably pretty good, but I have not heard of a lot of them. There could Um, be, uh, yeah, a handful of B-minuses in here. Sure. But in 90, he gets a a best-selling mystery by Scott Toro in his hands. And this kind of sets the path to the Pelican Brief and this kind of late career. I don't know, a renas- not necessarily a renaissance, but like a, he becomes very bankable in the 90s as a steward of these best-selling adaptations before he tragically dies in a car accident in 1998. Um, let's talk Presumed Innocent. For sure. Yeah, I'm loving, before we get into that, I'm you also love- more about orphans. 
No, I was going to say a, a movie that I'm interested in checking out. This is two years after Presumed Innocent, but Consenting Adults, a movie I've never heard of. It's only an hour and 39, so how bad could it be? And God, Kevin Klein, a- Mary Elizabeth Antonio, Kevin Spacey, oops. God, during a joint dinner at the restaurant, the neighbors offer to exchange wives for one night. It was a joke at first. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell the audience about uh, Presumed Innocent? Clocking in at two hours and seven minutes. Why? Presumed- Stop being such a time baby. As a lawyer investigates the murder of a colleague, he finds himself more connected to the crime than anyone else. <laughs> This is like a better IMDb summaries are becoming a better bit than I would have thought when you sort of did it out of directness slash laziness. Well, they're all based on user submission and then they're voted up and down. So are like they? they can Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had no idea. There are multiple offerings here uh in the synopses, but this one was the favored by the people who read it, which means it's maybe not the best synopsis of presumed innocent but it's the best of what they have wow so yeah harrison ford uh plays uh what is it like roland aka rusty sabich yep robinette is it joe biden's middle name i don't know but something like that yeah every time they like charge him with some heinous crime they they pull out the real name for the but the rest of the time it's just rusty Rusty Harrison Ford seems to have a pretty good life with Bonnie Bedelia and Jesse Bradford, who will go on to star in Swim Fan. <laughs> uh-huh. He's a prosecuting and? attorney. He's like the number two in insert Midwestern city near a lake. They never decide where we are. And it was shot in Detroit and Ontario. But it really seems like Chicago. But it's not. It's like Detroit, maybe. It's like a Great Lake city that's not Chicago. A Milwaukee, if you will. Where, But he takes a ferry to work, which is very striking. Yeah, so then and you kind of think they're like hanging out in Staten Island. It's immediately what I thought. The but, only ferry, it's that ferry and Buckleberry Ferry from Lord of the Rings are the only two ferries that I know. They're the so only two literary fairies that we're allowed to use here. Um, literary fairies by way of the Pakula School. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where we are. In one shot, I thought we were in Miami uh, when we're in um, Brian Dennehy's like, law firm office. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get to that. So he's the number two to Brian Dennehy, uh, who's running for re-election as like, best prosecutor or whatever it's not very clear <laughs> how this DA. is all he's DA. the district attorney but they don't call them that they call them like prosecuting attorneys the pa's office mm-hmm. anyway he's losing power and influence he's had a, a, a few political blunders the election's not looking good and the front runner is this guy who formerly worked in the office but was fired and a guy who's still allegedly working in the office, but like hasn't shown up in a couple of weeks. And what do you know? One night, one of their colleagues gets murdered, uh, Carolyn, and they're putting the putting the case together. And uh oh, it seems like a lot of calls were made between Harrison Ford's house uh, and this dead woman's apartment. 
and it looks like um, his fingerprints may be on a glass that's that happens to be there, and like there's maybe some carpet fibers from his house, and oh, maybe a Siemens insider. And so it's not looking really good. I mean, you know, you know from the title that like this dude at some point is going to be charged with this crime. And the movie definitely takes its sweet time getting to each excruciating piece of evidence. And then, of course, the disappearance and dismissal of each piece of evidence in the back half of the movie. gonna be so good carolyn polhemus was murdered last night some creep got into a place somehow and strangled her it looks like she was raped rusty i want you to handle this case personally you're the only one around here i can trust just catch me a bad guy you're in charge of this investigation there are 150 lawyers down there they couldn't find one who didn't sleep with her find out which of the creeps she put away is out on parole she's dead and you're still obsessing. You were in Carolyn's apartment the night she was killed. We've got the fingerprint results. There's a call from your house to hers that night. This is absurd. Go ahead, play cool. I know. You killed her. You're the guy. Why didn't you tell me about you and Carolyn? This is my life. We're not talking about some gossip. But indeed, you will go to trial. You're still in love with her. You know, we talk about this with Denzel in the Pelican Brief, but this is Harrison Ford, possibly at his most humorless ever, like really drained of like Rick Deckard and Rick Deckard Blade Runner has more like human qualities than Rusty Savage. Right. Um, yeah, it's something about like Pakula saying to these leading men. It's like you do know all the charm and humor and intensity that like you're known for that like brings people to the movie. I, I don't want you to do that in this role. I want you to only weep when you're like moved so much, but otherwise just I want it just monotone. And I want yeah. whispers over screams. And, and Harrison yeah, th- Ford. You know that haircut with the gentle quaff that you've had from 1977 to 1999? Put another ruin that. Yeah, let's put a number four on the buzzer (laughs) and just go over the whole head (laughs) on the front, but leave a weird about button on the back. Right, like a salt and pepper Mike Pence. Like, how close can we get to that? Yes, which is iconically the same haircut with, albeit shorter sideburns, from uh, Clute Donald Sutherland. On the one hand, this is not what I want out of Harrison Ford, one of my favorite movie stars. On the other hand, this is another movie that conforms to or rather inspired my theory about like you're watching what you think is pretty standard genre, some pretty standard procedure, but the movie in its bones is weird. It's like this guy who you know, you, you want you want him to either be a martyr or a monster, and he, or rather, you know, you've been taught to want that through most popular entertainment, but it, it's really uncomfortable to see him be a robot for an hour and then sort of come alive as he imagines himself being on trial. Like, the ease with, it, with which Rusty Savage slips into the first-person um, 
guilty role in kind of thinking about what the prosecutors will say like yeah but i wasn't thinking clearly when i touched the glass before i bludgeoned her is like this guy is a there's something not right in the wiring up there because he's talking effortlessly and with no emotion like he did it yeah he's got a specific set of skills for sure um and but i think the movie misses an opportunity to really make him like to show him being really good at the law. You know, I know this movie is already two hours and seven minutes long, but I think the monologue at the beginning, instead of a scene where he just like flips some guy who's in the stand and then like the guy goes to prison for eternity and he's like, yes, best prosecutor ever. (laughs) Like that we don't have that scene before we have like the Bonnie Bedelia kitchen room breakfast scene, I think is a mistake. Yeah, the movie opens, the striking cold open, as you said, is the empty jury box. And he gives a speech that I was going to make a joke. It's like, it's just the intro to Law and Order. And then you listen to it a little closer and it's such a hopeless speech. He doesn't say like the law works. He said, if the jury cannot find the truth, what is our hope of justice? Like the movie is compromised and defeated from the outset. For sure. And that's kind of what I like about it. But again, like if someone's given up, like then what are the stakes for that person? You know, and this guy we know pretty quickly feels guilty enough about his like weird obsession with his coworker that he wouldn't mind being in jail. I don't think I didn't get that sense that he was all that concerned about a guilty verdict, even if he got it. No, you're right. (laughs) That's true. He's, I mean, even when he tells Bonnie Bedelia, his wife, who's like still pretty pissed, no, no spoilers that, uh, he, you know, cheated on her, uh, and like still thinking about this woman who's dead, uh, He's like, hey, I'm probably going to get uh, indicted for this for this murder here. Uh, and then there'll be a grand jury and then they'll probably like, you know, be like a real jury. And then I'm probably going to go to jail for 25 to 50 years. Uh, so just keeping you up to date with like what's going on with me. Yeah. Thou doth protest too little. Yeah. He, pro- he not protests at all. The whole thing hinges on like, so whether you killed your coworker or not you were at her apartment that night touching glasses and he never really says no he never i wasn't says there he wasn't yeah <laughs> he never in the whole movie is like i wasn't there which is crazy because i think it would maybe be more interesting if he was there which is kind of the plot of uh you know no spoilers again but of um the undoing that was just on HBO where like there's, it's not disputed like whether or not he was there and it's like, how could he not have done it? Which I think is a good card to play. However, and chance, I feel like you have seen this before and you knew what the ending ending was. I did. This is one where like, if you have any interest in presumed innocent, you should um, not know the ending because whether it works thematically or what, and we're going to break into that. Um, the ending, the the ending is something. So, but I would bail out if you don't want to know the ending of Presumed Innocent. Skip to the end, by which I mean listen to a different podcast. Thanks so much for hanging out. <laughs> so he's dead uh, the whole time. Just kidding. So what what happens is the Bonnie Bedelia, you know, fucking killed her, 
and like was this like stoic wife the whole time supporting him sort of but being annoyed sort of uh but yeah she like killed him with a hammer and then like maybe wanted him to go to prison for it but then like had cold feet when she saw how much like the trial was taking it out of him which was really not that much because his personality didn't change a whole lot between knowing that his lover was dead and not knowing that his lover was dead so i think just that it worked out that way bonnie bedelia was like definitely backpedaling being like i was just trying to like teach you something i definitely would have gone to jail for you if it had come to that but would she have i don't know I, for the most part, I really like Bonnie Bedelia in this movie. I think that she's a, I think, I always think of her as one of the primary victims of, like, 80s, like, leading women who were completely disposed in, like, four-year windows of just playing wives because of, like, this and Die Hard. Um, she's, she's such a queen. Her blouses, her perm. I just love Bonnie Bedelia. And this also that she's just so fucking depressed in this movie. Like very credibly at home and depressed. I think she's pretty good at the speech at the end. It's a lot. My problem with this movie is um the constellation of people around the Carolyn character who whose lives would have been easier if she were dead. I just think there, this probably comes from the source material. I just think there's kind of a misogynist streak to the way that. Yeah. That the movie's moral complexity like hangs on John Spencer being like that broad was bad news before like throwing evidence into the water. Yes, exactly. You know, and, and that part of the commentary I think is like Pakula has control over that, right? Like it's all of these men who were like, Oh, I'm a little put off by this woman who's like advancing so quickly through the DA's office. And can we really trust her? And like, why did she want to work in sex crimes? Nobody wants to do that. What a freak. Um, and there is a moment of horror, I think, when Rusty finds out that his his best friend in the police department like basically did this because he is a misogynist. And now the person who Rusty loved wrongfully is dead <laughs> because of, in part because of this guy. Um, but there's just... The fact that the 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 Barbara murdering Carolyn also just depends on like the wife steal or the husband stealer trope. I don't know, man. Yes, like the whole like I you were obsessed, so I had to take her out of the picture. It's like, why don't you just? I mean, if it's not working out between the two of you, like, why don't you come to an amicable separation and try to find other people? I don't. I mean, I don't want to give too short. We listen. We can't give the savages marital advice, but um, all the the idea that it's like really Rusty's fault has just gotten too in voiceover at the end. And I, there's got to be a a deeper, more impactful way to show that. And also, just the way that Carolyn has been shown in flashback is not that flattering. She's like an idealist, but she's in the terms in the sense of wanting to stop children from being abused. But she also like has cutthroat ascension on her mind and like is using sex is i think is definitively using sex as a way to get to the top and just to yeah, put it seems pretty all, black and white yeah just to put all of this and you have multiple characters being like she made me crazy like if she made some other guy that crazy he probably offed her like it's just a lot yeah, i love that put. scene with the ex-husband who's just like i couldn't help but think I'd like to kill this person in this moment. 
I'm sure she made other men feel that way too. Spoiler alert, she made a woman feel that way. I think that we could totally reserve the position that there be women characters in crime movies that are that are awful as there as should be any characters right but this one is too muddied in its connection to like the movie's one successful professional woman she's like standing in for professional women at the same time as being like a craven lunatic and those things are all tied together and it's no this touches up against that like weird mid 90s nerve Disclosure. Disclosure, where it's just like enterprising and ambitious women are really just like Satanist sexual beings who are trying to like frame us for uh, harassment and then take our. Against me. Yes. They're going to take this newly installed HR and just ruin my career of being a dick to everyone. Fuck that. There's some other stuff in. I mean, again. It, it it looks good. Gordon Willis shooting the uh, that elevator coming down from the observation booth where it's just like, you know, lake outside and shadows in the elevator and all you can see is Denny's rage, but Ford's face, his shameful face is all in shadow is such is so much better than like a bestseller, like courtroom procedural needs to look. Right. But Yeah. There's also some like kind of dated photography in there too, especially in that scene with John Spencer where they're on that ferry and it's like clearly been added to the background. Yeah. They're not actually on the boat. I was imagining Gordon Willis being very excited about pitch black water though. Hey, I'd be excited about it too. I think this one is a pretty obvious bad good. I think it's like an entertaining legal procedural with a surprising ending uh, if you haven't seen it before. And I think, I mean, there's enough wattage on this thing with Harrison Ford, with Brian Dennehy. We haven't talked about Royal Julia. Uh, yeah. You know, the Adams family patriarch, who was the, uh, who's the fast-talking lawyer. Sandy Stern? Sandy Stern. If ever there was a Royal Julia character name that didn't quite work, it was Sandy Stern. <laughs> Well, this is almost like the reverse Pakula thing of like the conspiracy is there. It just has nothing to do with the reason that you were framed for killing this person. Right. You know, there's no like Richard, you know, ending to this movie where the conspiracy where he's gotten in the way. He knew too much. He didn't knew too much. He just had an affair, Harrison Ford. And that was right. it's like if Sella Ward like smashed herself in the head or something because he was having an affair. Good, good comparison. I, I might flip the other way. I might you think go it's good, good, bad. I think it's good, bad. I really like appreciate what Ford is trying to do. I appreciate that all of these people who would rather be making something like a little pulpier and a little more dramatic were like, okay, I'll do the Pakula thing. Fifteen years later, um, and Gordon Willis makes it look great. I mean, it looks so much better than Pelican Brief. I think. Um, Yes, for Which sure. Willis did not shoot. Um, but yeah, the what you just referred to, though, the idea that the the municipal bribery conspiracy, it sort of always feels off to the side to me. Or like, 
it, it's like just like this way out of the trial that like I don't understand the machinations of. For sure. That it, I, I was never that like compelled by the blurring of the lines because I didn't think they blurred that much. I'm going good, bad. Do we want to talk about Tim from Jurassic Park having his head in a vice? Oh or do my we need God. To end, do we need to end the podcast? Do you, is that scene harrowing or is it like a little eye rolly? It's again, it just goes to like, why is this so goddamn weird? Harrison Ford going, remember the words of the boy. My mommy hurt my head. My mommy hurt my head. And, and you it's like, you're can't. not going to go for it a third time. <laughs> are you Harrison Ford? And then my mommy hurt my head and then they fuck <laughs> yeah and then she is so turned on by the refrain of mommy hurt my head that yeah she can't wait to leave the office to have him right there on the desk right okay that's that's our pakula pod um we'll have to wrap back around to sophie's choice at some at some later date yeah um, holocaust pod time oh god Schindler's um, List, Sophie's Choice, in the Gray Zone. Wow, we there's a lot more options than that. Yeah, um, I don't want to. I just don't want to do that. You can email us if you want to know if Noah and I ever watched Comes a Horseman and or Consenting Adults. <laughs> that is our next watch party. Is the <laughs> Comes a Horseman <laughs> Consenting Adults double feature? Yeah. After this, it's going to be the p- most obscure Pakula movies. <laughs> cool part too yeah i was gonna send you like a, a quintessential like bob woodward like notepad where i like wrote my name and connected me to your name and then in the corner i just like wrote matisse from pelican brief question mark not matisse <laughs> i think it is matisse he's at the core of all of this he's the ceo okay. of the parallax company i was gonna write like nixon bribe good good question mark Anthony Hopkins or Patreon equals slush fund amazing alright man this is fun I'll see you next time until then